Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. I'd like to open up with a story tonight. Um, as you can see, the title of the message tonight is The Battleground States. So right away, I'm sure you're thinking of politics, right? And how the battleground states are very important in uh, the election of a president at any time throughout history. But before we even go there, let me just sit back and allow the Lord to minister to you uh, through this uh, story. On the morning of January 10, 1948, Marcel Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual. En route, he suddenly decides to visit Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. Accordingly, at Ozone Park, Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn. He went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incredible story. The car was crowded, and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave, and I slipped into the empty place. I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces, and I was struck by the features of this passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s, and, he and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian-language newspaper, and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. I didn't want to say it in Hungarian just in case uh, you didn't understand me. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II started. He had been put into a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew the city quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment once occupied, occupied by his father, mother, brothers, and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him calling Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps. 
Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer and hungry, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the U.S. in October 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman who I had met recently at the home of friends also had been from Debrecen. She had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked in what I hope was a casual voice, was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off this train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. Later, I learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, she was no one else. There was no one else at home. And after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, then suddenly cried, This is Bella! This is Bella! And he began to mumble hysterically. Seeing that poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently, I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Mara, who also sounded hysterical. I am sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I go to my wife. At first, I thought I had better accompany Paskin, lest the man should faint from excitement. But I decided that this was a moment in which no stranger should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Mara's address, paid the fare, and I said goodbye. Bella Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, 
so electric, was suddenly released in motion that afterward neither he nor Mara could recall much about it. I remember only when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned gray, she said, she said later. The next thing I knew, a taxi stops in front of my house, and it's my husband who comes toward me. Details I cannot remember. Only this I know, that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much. I have also lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from his, the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever again befall. Providence has brought us together, he says simply. It was meant to be. Skeptical, skeptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorial, memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Marcel suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance, or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? True story. Is anything a coincidence in God's creation? Is anything too impossible? Are there things that happen to you and to me that we never even think about God's hand in it? And remember where they were separated, how they were initially separated during World War II in the concentration camps. The title of tonight's message is The Battleground States. And what you're looking at right now is a picture on the uh, left side from Gettysburg. It's called the Wheat Field. And on the right side is a uh, artist reenactment of what he thought, based on everything history shows, us, took place on that. So I'd like to show a minute and a half clip to give you a little more before we get back to the message. I'm standing in the wheat field, and during the battle, the wheat was actually chest high, ready to be harvested, until some New York troops actually marched through the wheat field, and from then on, this would be trampled wheat in this area. But there were more things than that on the soldiers' mind. The main troops at first, uh, the 17th Maine under Detrobriand, were actually uh, on the south border of the wheat field. They got attacked by Arkansas, then by Georgia troops, coming from the south, actually, toward the north. Ultimately, they're going to have a threat over on their flank there, and they refused their line to fight against some of these South Carolinians. More South Carolinians arrived just as two Union brigades from the 5th Corps actually arrived to support Detrobriand's troops. The fight intensifies from there. Some of the troops fall back, some return back to their positions as an entire Union division enters the fray. Uh, John C. Caldwell, and then you're going to have more Georgia brigades enter the fray. And this is a particularly intense fight. We're still trying to figure out what happened here. It changed hands six times here in the wheat field, and it would become the bloodiest spot of Gettysburg. It was said you could walk from one side of the 
of the other, just stepping on bodies as a result of the whirlpool of battle that took place here. It was a virtual carpet of blue, gray, and red, one of the most horrible places to see after the battle, specifically because after the fighting was over, the wheat field was a no-man's land with Confederates over there and Union troops over on the east side in front of Little Round Top, and the cries from the wounded that night were supposedly unbearable, made worse, actually, because wild boars had escaped from a pen and were actually disemboweling uh, wounded Union troops who were too hurt to crawl away. A horrible place to be on the night of July 2nd. In the wheat field on Gettysburg Field, it was the largest and bloodiest and costliest fight during that battle. 20,000 men fought from 4.30 in the morning until 7.30 at night. Over 15 hours of fighting on 19 acres of land owned by uh, just a farmer in that area. 30% of the soldiers were killed, which amounts to about 6,000 soldiers that went into eternity. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Now, I usually use the New King James Version, but because my title is the uh, Battleground States, I went to a different version that just adds the word or it changes one of your words, and you'll see it when I read it to Battleground. So in verse 1, it says, After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. Now, I want you, as you're there, turn back a chapter to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, verses 19 to 22. 1 Samuel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, due to be delivered, And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And he said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. One of the meanings of the word Israel is governed by God. They were supposed to be governed by God. You and I as uh, children, born-again Christian guys and girls, our Lord is supposed to be our King. Jesus is supposed to be our God. We're supposed to follow Him and be obedient to His Word. Do we mess up? Yes, because uh, we're sinners by nature. God, we're works under construction that God is always working on, and He's faithful and just to bring us to that spot that he wants us to be. Throughout the Old Testament, and it's amazing, it's amazing that churches that call themselves Christians want to eliminate the Old Testament today. 
They don't want to pay attention to it. The Bible says that you add to or take away from this book, you will be under the curses of this book. You don't mess with God's word, all of God's word. He gave it to us from Genesis to Revelation. We live in one of the most apostate times ever. We have witches. We have occult leaders. In the paper, on TV, audio, video, telling us what they want to do. And what is the church doing? Who is sounding the call? Well, I can tell you one thing. This church in Janesburg, New Jersey is. This church in Janesburg, New Jersey has stayed open during the government close down, going through all the, uh, you know, social distancing, making masks available. Do you understand that the government is not God? The government is not God. God puts every person, whether it's the president, the governor, the mayor, he puts them in that position. That does not mean they honor him. That does not mean they're born-again Christians. That does not mean they're going to heaven. As a matter of fact, unless there's a miracle, many of them are going to hell. And the Bible tells us we need to pray for our officials, whether it be in New Jersey or throughout the country. Now, why... The Philistines captured the Ark of God in 1 Samuel 5.1. They took it from the battleground. They had slaughtered the Israeli army. Now, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God is very clear that if you want crops to grow, if you want a fruitful and bountiful land, obey him. If not, there's going to be a famine in the land. You obey me, you trust me, you follow my word. I will defeat your enemies. Well, here we see that in this battle, the enemy won. The pagan, the uncircumcised soldiers of the Philistines, they won. The same Philistines that a little teenage boy stood up to an eight, nine, ten-foot giant and said, who are you to come against the armies of God? Who are you, you uncircumcised Philistine, to mess with our God? That's the same God that you and I follow. Do you know that? That's the same God that you and I follow. The same God that came from heaven to earth and humbled himself and became one of us. Born in a stable. But yet kings visited him. Lived a life with a mom and dad. The dad had a carpentry business. The mom was just a regular girl in the town. That God chose, handpicked, to be the carrier of him in her womb. And we know most of the story. 
But he didn't come to this earth just to be born and live. His main purpose, as we know, was to go to the cross to die for your sins and mine. Because he knew that this earth was a battlefield. Still is. Still is. Even during the thousand reign of Christ, there will be people who will sin. But God, who will be reigning from the throne in Israel, Jesus himself, will put a squash on that sin and crime right away. It won't be let go like we see in the cities of our country. We won't see godless men and women not honor God and look to him, but push their own agenda, whether it be socialism or Antifa or or Black Lives Matter. Those aren't godly organizations. They don't promote Jesus Christ. They don't pray for peace on earth, goodwill to men. They don't even take care of your constitution that this land was founded on. The Judeo-Christian constitution. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jesus Christ of the New Testament. They don't care about him. They profane his name in, in the government places throughout this country. Yes, there are men and women who follow Christ. There are men and women. Mike Pence, our vice president, has Bible studies in the White House. He prays with President Trump every day. Do you read that? Do you hear that? No. You don't hear that stuff. Why? Because it's a battlefield. It's a battleground. It's an agenda. The things of God are never supposed to be out in the open. Because Satan is always trying to squash it. There are terrible statistics in this land. This is just from California. There are 50, there, there's supposed to be, there's said to be 15 million evangelical Christians in California. Evangelical. That means they're supposed to be Christians of action, not Christians of apathy. Half of those 15 million evangelical Christians are not registered to vote. I heard in the last election, 50% of the Christians in the United States of America didn't vote. (laughs) Didn't vote. They have that right. And I'll tell you, being an older guy that's been around and seen things, we have a very apathetic nation. Christians and non-Christians. They think everything's going to work out okay. Just give it time. Everything has always worked out before. But we're facing a demonic force that has never been this evident in the United States or globally. We're seeing it throughout the whole world. So now, God is calling, has always, has always, God is calling the 2020 Christians in the United States of America to be men and women of action. And we'll look at that a little bit later. Going back to that voting thing, and this is just California. Remember I said half of the evangelical Christians are not registered to vote. Of those half, so let's go right to seven and a half million. Of those seven and a half million, half of those only vote when it's the presidential election. The other half don't vote. And then when it's a non-presidential election, only 12% 
of the evangelical Christians vote. Now, my question is, what Bible are they reading? Is it the same Bible that we have? If the answer is yes, then are they obeying that word? Are they listening to God's word? Or are they just pick and choose in those things to make their life comfortable? I believe it's the latter. I believe they're taking those things just to be comfortable and cozy as the occult and the Satanist and those who don't believe in the occult and the Satanists, but they don't have any honors of the God of heaven, are just being swept along in this black wave of sin and destruction and negativity that is facing you and me in our country, but we're seeing it all over the world. So you know something else is going on besides what's happening in the United States. This is a global attack on you and me and all our human brothers and sisters. And it's foretold in the Bible. But are those evangelical Christians only listening to their pastors on Wednesday and Sunday, or are they getting their face in the book and having their own personal relationship with Jesus so the Holy Spirit, God himself, speaking to you through his word is touching your heart one-on-one? Or are we... You relying on other people to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your individual heart. It's a call for action, everybody. So why is this happening with this Ark of God? Remember, the Ark of God in the Old Testament was a place where the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments were, right? The uh, bread, the orange rod, the manna was the bread. And it was where God would dwell in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain that the priest could only go in there once a year to make an offer of sacrifice on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for himself and the sins of all the people. They stole that ark. You see, that ark used to always be used by the Israelite, Israel to go into war. And they won most of their wars. But they lost this one. So what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, number one, God is a loving, merciful, graceful God. Amen? Right? Yes. Thank God for that. Or we all be toast. We want to be here right now. He has mercy. His mercy is new every morning. But he's also a judge. He judges sin. Sin has to be paid for. During the tribulation... Pastor Joe, in book of Revelation, the tribulation period, is God's wrath on this sin, Christ-rejecting world. We won't be here if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So God is a judge. Yes, he's loving and forgiving. But for those people who don't ask for forgiveness and accept him as their Savior, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. We just have to look at the cross. God died on this cross. He doesn't accept everybody into heaven. It doesn't work that way. If he did, Jesus would not have to die on the cross, right? Amen? Yeah. He wouldn't have to do that if there was any other way. 
for you and me and the whole world to get to heaven. He did not have to die on this cross. But he died on the cross. He died on that cross. Why did the Philistines win here? Because God wanted the Israelites to turn back and trust God. That's his message today to you and me in this nation, in this world. Turn back and trust God before the judgment hits. There are signs right now that the second coming of Christ is close. Things are lining up in the world scene over in the Middle East. If the second coming of Jesus Christ is close, how close is the rapture of the church? If there's already signs for the second coming, how close is the rapture of the church? It's imminent, meaning it can happen in any minute. It's imminent. It's quick. It can happen just like that. Now, the Israelites relied on the ark of God. Not, ready, the God of the ark. They relied on the ark of God. Not the God of the ark. Is our faith or our center of our worship and our obedience in something other than Jesus Christ? Check yourself. Check yourself. Is it in man? Is it in government? Is it in the uncircumcised Philistines, some of them that lead our country or our state? Do we put more trust in these men and women than we do in Jesus Christ? Think about it. Jesus says, perfect love cast out all fear. You know, I'm seeing a lot of Christians that are fearful. I'm seeing a lot. So where are they in their walk with God? Is it a very baby type of walk? And, you know, like real young walk? Or are they diving into the scriptures to, to see, to walk hand in? You walk hand in hand with God by walking hand in hand in his word. That's how you get tight with God. Through his word. He does that. When he sees you in his word. Lord speak to me. What is going on? I'm anxious. I'm stressful. I'm fearful. Touch my heart Lord. Help me. He will. He's a God of his word. But do you know his word? Is your trust in Jesus? Is it in Governor Murphy? Is it the president? Is it these BLM movements, Antifa movements, any other movements? Or is it in the first person that it should be in? The God-man, Jesus Christ. All this is going to come together. All this stuff has fallen into place, put in us right where God wants us to be. But is the church sleeping as the world is burning? Are you sleeping as the world is burning. Really, think about it. What does God expect? What does he expect? He wants us to follow him. You saw it in the, um, if you were here or watching online, Pastor Joe has been showing uh, clips from The Chosen. And I think the last one he showed right was Peter with the fish. I think that was the one. Remember all the fish? What a great picture that was. And remember, Peter just fell on his face before the Lord and said, Lord, like Peter was just blown away. Lord, 
This, uh, this is too much. I, I just caught, all, you just, all this fish, all these fish. I'm a fisherman. I've never caught this much fish. Maybe in a year I've caught all this fish or a month or a week, whatever. But he was blown away. And he realized in another depth that this was no ordinary man. This was God in the flesh that could go beyond nature, walking on water and all this stuff. And all, he could say, what do I do, Lord? What do I do? And Jesus said to him, probably two of the most profound words ever, follow me. There's almost a peace in that, isn't there? I felt it. Follow me. It's not all this other stuff. Just follow me. How do we follow him? Get in the book. Get in the book. Honey, I shrunk the kids. Get in the book and read it. Be part of it. Let it be part of you. Go to church. Now, if you're out there listening and you have a compromised system, you have medical issues, play safe. Play it safe. I was a baseball coach. I played baseball. Play safe. But if you're healthy and strong, what are you doing? What are you doing? Probably, as we look back one day, this will be one of the most pivotal times that people have been on this planet. And what impact are you and me going to make on the kingdom of God? Are you, you individually, building into someone's life? Anyone. Doesn't matter their age. Are you building Christ into someone's life? Are you taking the things in God's Word and teaching the Word? Do you know the Word to teach it? If you don't know it, you can't teach it. How do you know it? Get in the book. I just want to take this moment for thanks. I thank Jesus Christ that our church never closed. You know, we are one of not millions of churches throughout the country that never closed. You know that. We kept our doors open for the people. There's been more ministry going on over this whole last four or five months that we've ever seen, both here and online. I thank Jesus we don't compromise the Word of God. I thank Jesus we have been ministering to others during this planned demic. Investigate. Do your research. It's, in, it's insane the research, what it brings out. I thank Jesus for the leadership of Pastor Joe. That leadership. And I thank Jesus for Pastor Paul and myself being called to help Pastor Joe here in this special place with these special people. I don't know. You know, I make a 50-minute drive. And I've been doing that for 100 years, so it's no big deal. But I make a 50-minute drive to come out to this church. I wouldn't come to a church that was wishy-washy. 
I wouldn't come to a church that didn't teach from God's word and hold up his word. That recognizes that Jesus Christ is the God creator of the universe. I wouldn't. I would go to a church that taught that. That taught the biblical God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. Do I understand that? Guys, I'm a phys ed teacher, coach. No, I don't understand that. One day I will. You know when? When I see Jesus face to face. And I'll go, I should have thought of that. But I accept it because I see it throughout Scripture. It's laid out in Scripture. So as we close, the battleground, the battleground fields. What are those battleground fields? Well, one is definitely your heart and mine. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? What that means is you can't understand it. I can't understand it. But you know who can understand it? The maker of it. God. No one else. No one else. (laughs) There's nobody else. So you go to God and talk to him about your heart. How to change it. How to improve it. And in John 2.24, it says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew how fickle the human race was. He knew how quickly we can change, how we can put family ahead of God and his word. It happens all the time. All over. It happens all the time. Adversity always brings out the, uh, the preciousness of a person. Adversity brings out preciousness of a person. A diamond is formed with all that pressure on it. Diamonds in gook and dirt and mud and cold, damp places. But when it's dug and, and found out and polished, it shines. One of the most expensive jewels in the world, right, is a diamond. You and me are God's diamonds. He polishes us. He cleans us through the water of his word. But you have to get into the word. You have to dive in. So the heart is so deceitful. Only God can change it. But it's a battleground, isn't it? Isn't your heart and my heart a battleground? We battle. What things that we battle with today? But understand that the battle is the Lord's, but we got to give it to him and we got to get in his word so he shows us through his words the things that come together to make our heart whole and stronger to battle the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He tells us there's a world, flesh, and devil that we're battling. But we need the sword, God's word, to fight that. Do we have a toothpick that we're fighting with? Little pocket knife? Or do we have a sword? It's going to knock off heads of the enemy, spiritually speaking. I got to just check to see if it's uh, Thursday yet. No, we're good. Okay. All right. So the next thing, the mind, Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh 
set their minds. Notice, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Notice the capital S. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, God, that's God. You can put God's name right, right? The things of God, according to God, the things of God. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if I had a spiritual scale here, everybody, tonight, all right, and I put your mind on, like a mind in the middle, would it go down? Would it go spiritually minded or fleshly minded? Would it be somewhere in the middle like this or would it be lopsided? Where would you be on that weight? Where would you be? So for those, are you living according to the flesh and are you setting your mind on those things or are you living according to God's word and his Holy Spirit working in you to draw you closer to God, to fall in deeper and deeper in love with Jesus Christ, the shepherd, the king, your best friend? Because look what happens to be carnally minded is death. It's like spiritual death. You're dry. There's nothing happening in your life as a Christian. You're just dead spiritually. But if you're spiritually minded, you have life. You have a peace that passes all understanding. So you have the heart, you have the mind. Last thing is the spirit. In Luke 2, verse 40, speaking about Jesus, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows you and me how to honor him. He set the example. We're to pray to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. Praying to him. Worshiping them. Jesus grew and became strong in spirit. That spirit that we had just seen. Is your spirit growing and becoming stronger in Christ? Or is it more attached to the things of the world? Jesus is using everything that's going on in this world that man thinks they're in charge. Just like at the Tower of Babel. Man thought they were in charge. And it's just confusion. It's, it's divisiveness. Are you growing stronger in spirit or the things of the world? What are you getting wrapped up in? Jesus says, follow me. He'll fill you with wisdom because wisdom comes from the fear, the healthy respect of God, the Bible says in Proverbs. Do you fear the Lord? Do you respect him? Do you honor him? Or are you just a Christian in name only? Or do you, does your walk back up your talk and what you believe? That's very important. 
And notice what happens. The grace of God, God's riches at the expense of Jesus Christ who died on the cross was upon him. That same grace is upon you and, and me. But how much time are we giving God? 10%, 5%? He should be number one. should be 100% in everything we do. It's all about Jesus. Because everything else is passing away. But his word will never pass away. I want to just show you this clip. It's about four minutes. And then I'll just uh, wrap up with a few thoughts and then we'll pray. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? My name is Melinda Renfield-Baines, and I'm one of the children that uh, Sir Nicholas Winton saved. Sir Nicholas lives here in Maidenhead, and I'm at the Cox Green School to tell the children my story. All this happened in 1939, and that makes me quite an old lady. But at that time, I was nine and a half. My sister and I found ourselves at the railway station, where, with some, a number of other children, we were leaving to go to England. All the children had to wear labels, and this is the label that was hanging around my neck. Uh, but to be able to leave the country, we had to have special permits. And this is the permit that was uh, got the British Committee children in Prague. And then on the back, you've got the German permit that we were allowed to leave the country. We were very lucky. The rest of the family were taken away to a concentration camp, to the gas chambers. And 15,000 children in Czechoslovakia died in concentration camps. None of us had any idea how we got to England. Here was a man who had, before the war, rescued 669 children from a country that was occupied by Germans and no one knew about it. If Nicky Winton hadn't organized those trains, I would have probably died. Here I am with 668 other children that represent the lives that he had saved. He died when he was 105. But what an incredible legacy he left behind. In New Jersey today, my wife is a school teacher. 950 schools were um, checked out. Of those 950 schools, 480 are out completely. They're doing virtual. 400 are in and out doing a combination of being present and going home and on virtual. 70 are all in. And that's just 950 schools. That doesn't account for all the schools in New Jersey. That's the only numbers that we have there. The suicide rate among our teenagers has gone up over the time of COVID. But not only teenagers, all ages has been impacted by this, this isolation. See, isolation is, ne is not good. It's something God never intended that's why he says to fellowship with one another, to interact with one another, to laugh and cry and eat and talk with one another. You and I are 
Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He lives in you. You are a light of the world, the scripture says. So what light are you bringing into a dark world that's getting darker and darker? Whose life are you building into? Whose life are you making a difference to? So I want to give you some action points, just some things. I want you to pray about somebody that you can invest in. Somebody that you can love in Christ's name. Guys with guys and girls with girls. I want you to pray about um, befriending a child that maybe only has one parent. So if it's, a, if it's a single parent that maybe a couple guys from the church can just be like a, a dad. Pray that God opens up these doors because most of the crime is committed because kids don't have dads. So many kids don't have fathers. Pray that maybe you have a passion to do something. Maybe it's carpentry, electricity. Maybe you love history. Check out with different, you know, homeschooling numbers are growing. Kids are leaving public schools because public schools aren't opening and they're going to Catholic schools or other private schools if they can afford them or they're doing homeschooling. Check out in your area of homeschooling and see if they need help. See if you can be one of the master teachers. And you might say, well, Vinny, I don't teach like the English is in the mass. Well, you might have a trade that you can teach. There might be something that, like I said, you have a passion for something. Maybe it's, it's a hobby that you have. Bring that hobby to these kids. Invest in their lives. Help out these moms who are getting burnt out by trying to be homeschool moms. Get involved in your town council. Get involved in your school board. Don't let these uncircumcised Philistines fill all these positions. You have the living God on your side. Occupy until Jesus Christ takes you home. Occupy. Be busy doing the things to elevate Jesus Christ higher and higher. Because as you do that, what happens? He draws people to himself. Get in the fight. Don't be a spectator. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Everybody's in in the game. Where are the Christians? Where are they out there? They need to rise up. The Holy Spirit's got to just knock their socks off. May we be those individuals that inspire other believers to get into the game. Amen? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.